Welcome to The Scrap Show, a production of Recycling Today. Covering the business of scrap metal recycling, we feature conversations about markets, technology, the industry's rich history, and the traditions and ways of doing business that stay reliably familiar. Listen in as guests from across the country and around the world, processors, traders, and industry allies provide insights and observations. The Scrap Show, a conversation between friends in an industry with a rich history and a bright future. Hello, everyone. This is Brian Taylor of the Recycling Today Media Group, and welcome to The Scrap Show. We're here, as the name implies, to talk about scrap recycling. Each podcast will offer a conversation focusing on the scrap industry journey of our guest, and possibly will also get their views on the shape of the industry today. Today, I'm happy to welcome Shelly Padnos, who spent several decades in leadership positions with the Michigan scrap firm that bears her family name. Shelly also was the first, and I believe still only, woman to serve as chair of the Institute of Scrap Recycling Industries of ISRI, and I suspect we'll talk a little about that. Let me start by saying welcome, Shelly Padnos. Thank you, and thank you for having me, Brian. Very, very much our pleasure. Can you tell us, our, our listeners, when and how you got your start in the scrap business? Was it inevitable growing up in the Padnos family, or, or how did it all start? Well, um, it, it, it might have seemed inevitable to me. It did not seem inevitable to my father. Uh-huh. Uh, I think um, I grew up I, not just with the business, but in the business. All of us worked when we were young. Um, actually, um, I, was, I, I, I worked until I was about 16 during the summers. Okay. Um, uh, just doing all kinds of different things, including dispatching and um, the scale operation and those sorts of things. So I was, um, I, I really grew up in the business. Uh, it was a big part of our lives. Uh, and I think I always had an interest in the business. I went to law school. I practiced law for about five years. Uh, oh, okay. And then uh, they offered me a partnership. And that seemed like uh, a very big deal to me. Like uh, this was now going to be um, this big commitment that I was going to make. And, okay. and I was um, going to do this for the rest of my life. And I wasn't quite ready to try that. I, I, I really thought that if I was going to take a flyer, I was 30 years old. Um, I thought I could try something different. Um, okay. Even if it didn't work, I would be young enough to still go back and practice law. Uh, so I went to my dad to talk to him about it. And he said, this is no place for a woman. Oh, no. Actually, I think he, he probably said this is no place for a girl. <laughs> <laughs> and to clarify this, we're talking about Seymour Padnos. Is that your father? Correct. Seymour. Okay. Seymour. And this was in Holland, Michigan. It was the Maine or still the only? It was in Holland. And, okay. and actually, at the time Michigan it, was, it was, we had one and a half yards at that point mm. in time. So it was, uh, we owned part of a yard up in Ludington at that time. Okay. Um, so, um, yeah, and you know, he he said no, and go think about it. And you know, I came back to him again, and I said, no, I'm really serious. And he said, okay, well, you have to go talk to your uncle. <laughs> oh no. Okay, <laughs> so I went and talked to my uncle Stuart. Okay. Um, and uh, they finally sort of both agreed, but I think they didn't quite know what to do with me. Hmm. Um, you know, with the boys. Uh, the boys being Mitch and Jeff, who preceded me into the business, my okay. cousin Jeff, my brother Mitch, 
Mm -hmm. um, they literally rented them a car and sent them out on the road. Uh-huh, okay. Just... I think that that was very intimidating for them to think about sending me out on uh, the road. I see. So okay. um, I struggled a bit, I think, in the, in the early days to figure out um, where I was going to fit in and, and how that was all going to work. But um, yeah, it's been uh, um, 37 years actually now, so. Okay. So what, what has been the progression of responsibilities or titles, I guess, you know, what, what, where did you find your first niche and how did you move up? Um, uh, you know, I, 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 we started, um, and I think it was a really good thing for me, but I did a, a, a about a six month rotation working in every single part of the yard. Oh. Um, uh, I was out on the sorting lines. I was, um, I tried to weld. That was, a, I'm not, never going to make a living. <laughs> as a welder, I will tell you. Um, and, uh, you know, so, uh, and then um, a, as the timing happened, um, Bob Stein came to work for us and oh. he was a non-ferrous metals trader. And mm -hmm. um, I went to work for um, Bob Stein and I um, started at, despite their concerns, I was out on the road at that point a great deal. Okay, all right. How did your ISRI involvement get started? Because obviously some of our some of our listeners might know you more as Shelley Padnos of ISRI officer, you know, stature. How, how did you get started with the local chapter or how did that all start? Uh, because I was a, a lawyer, um, I um, volunteered to work on the Michigan chapter legislative um, uh, committee. Uh -huh. um, Michigan and many, many of the legislators were long-term legislators and I knew a lot of them personally okay. um, and, and they knew me. Um, and so um, that gave me a little bit of an edge, I think on the legislative end. And I started working uh, for the Michigan chapter on that, on that basis. I see, okay. What's um, in terms of, you know, at Lewis, at Padnos INM, I guess as, as, as it was known for a long time, now simply Padnos, but in your leadership years, what, how did, how did the company change? How did you try to shape it uh, in terms of, uh, you know, late 20th century scrap industry? It was changing quite a bit or probably offers to consolidate. What were some of the issues you had? Well, I, I, to begin with, I want to say that um, um, when, when um, I talk about leadership in the in Padness company um, during the time that I was in a leadership position, it was very much my cousin, Jeff, my brother and Mitch and, and I. And so okay. um, uh, we sort of had a little bit of a division of responsibilities, but um, we worked together on almost all the major things. Mm -hmm. um, if I had a, a niche, it was probably in the um, mergers and acquisitions and um, real estate. And, and, and okay. we grew um, during the course of my period as much by real estate as we did by mergers and acquisitions. I really um, I'm a, I'm a big believer in, uh, that, um, taking a brownfield site and rejuvenating it or whatever else oh, okay. is, is actually quite a bit less expensive than, um, buying an existing place. Mm -hmm. Um, and we had, were able to, um, do that in several different, uh, occasions, including moving places that were 
not particularly protective because of their location or their size or whatever else. And, and so I spent a lot of time, a lot of my time doing that. I also did a lot of work with um, account, um, with, with industrial accounts. And I think that um, I'm responsible for getting us a little bit more focused and organized in terms of that aspect of um, working on uh, industrial account uh, acquisition and retain, uh -huh. retaining. Okay, you had mentioned Bob Stein and non-Ferris being where you kind of got started. And that's, uh, Bob, I know a little bit. I'm gonna have to invite him onto the Scrap Show. Thank you for that, that reminder. Uh, but what, did you stay with non-Ferris quite a bit? Is that still where you kind of have, have an interest uh, on, that, on that side, on that part of the industry? Um, I think, I, um, no, really. I, I, I think that my interest is pretty broad-based at this okay. point. I mean, yeah. I think that um, anybody who's in a multifaceted scrap processing business, um, I, I'll tell you exactly what I told um, my cousin, Jonathan Padness, who's the current president and CEO of the company. And that very early on, I said, um, um, Jonathan, in, in this company, you can delegate paper, you can delegate uh, plastics and over and oversee it. You can delegate non-ferrous and oversee it. You can't delegate ferrous. Uh -huh. Okay. It continues to be, in my opinion, the most complicated. Um, we do have some hedging opportunities now, but in those days we had none. Right. Um, and uh, it, it 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 continues to be, I think, um, the biggest part of our business. Mm -hmm. And uh, the most challenging part and the part that I think requires the most uh, analytical thinking. Oh, okay. So that every 30 days you're not caught in a position that makes you say, uh-oh. <laughs> exactly. Oh, okay. and, and that you make very conscious decisions. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I'm a believer in making conscious decisions. And then um, everybody owns up to making those decisions because they're always going to be sometimes right, hopefully more than not, but right. sometimes wrong. <laughs> uh -huh. In terms of your, your leadership roles with ISRI or your leadership roles as a co-leader at the company, you know, to what extent did you feel at the time that you were overcoming or running into any barriers as a woman? Uh, was that something that you were reminded of often or, you know, didn't have time to think about it? How would you classify it? Um, I, you know, I, I think that, um, it's a question of how you decide that you're going to handle, um, those kinds of issues and whether, um, you're going to allow them to be barriers or whether they're, um, actually going to just be more like hurdles. Mm. Um, and so, um, you know, I would say, yes, there were a lot of hurdles. And okay. um, I think in, in, in every aspect and, um, and, but when I, when I began practicing law, there were only two other women in Ottawa County practicing law. Mm. Um, and um, I always said that if you were a man and you went to law school and you passed the bar and you got a job, you were presumed to be um, capable. And if you're a woman and you did all of those things, then you got to prove yourself. Um, and I think that that's still very much the case. Um, and I, and it certainly was the case throughout my time. Hmm. There's always 
an added extra step and you can decide how you choose to um, deal with it, um, both internally and externally. I mean, you can get angry and frustrated and, or you can just say, um, no, this is what I want and this is what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna to have to remember as an interviewer to make that distinction between a barrier and a hurdle because that's something that, uh, those are two different things, aren't they? <laughs> uh, they are, they are. Yeah, and accepting your Lifetime Achievement Award and congratulations on that from ISRI, that was a, a couple of months ago. You said uh, there is more to be done in terms of the role, finding and, and finding more and loftier roles for women in the scrap industry. Can you revisit your suggestion to company leaders about diversity, I thought it was quite quite an articulate set of comments that you made. Sure. Um, well, and and my comments go beyond just women. Okay, mm -hmm. I will just say that I, I'm speaking about um, my experience is obviously limited to that, but I'm speaking about diversity in general. And I I think that the most important point that I could make to people is that um, if you bother um, to look at both studies and at the most successful companies and entities out there, what you will find is diverse teams. Hmm. And um, if you want to be, if you want to increase your chances of success, what you will do is you will create diverse teams and you will make room for different ideas and different opinions um, to influence your direction. And I think that that is um, a hard concept to grasp. Right. And I think it's even more difficult to implement. Mm. Um, you know, uh, people talk all the time about implicit bias, you know, the bias that every single one of us has. Um, and, uh, you know, I have it, you have it, and, and, and how do you overcome implicit bias? And, and my example is you walk into a room, there's a group of men and there's a group of women. Mm. Um, and it's a, it's a professional meeting, okay? I but know. there's still, where do you go? Um, and, and you do that um, automatically without thinking, without any consciousness, without any mm -hmm. thought of like, oh, I'm going to um, exclude those people from my conversation or I don't, I, 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 it's just, my comfort level's there and I'm going there and boom. And I think that's really what implicit bias looks like. Okay. Um, and every one of us has it. You walk into a, a group with um, Asians in one place and mm -hmm. all white guys in another place and you just naturally do it. And so overcoming that implicit bias, overcoming that natural tendency, that, that, that quick thinking um, is how some of the writers talk about it. Right. Uh, fast thinking and slow thinking is, is taking the time mm -hmm. to think about actually making a choice. And it doesn't mean you still can't go to the guys, <laughs> to the white guys, okay? Right. <clears throat> but it means that instead of just going where your gut just sends you instantly, You've mm -hmm. thought it through and you've really tried to, to and I believe that that um, is how you overcome any kind of um, stumbling block to, to moving forward in those things is, is to make conscious thought about it. I can use myself as an example. I'm basically um, an introvert, mm -hmm. um, but 
when I worked my way through the chair, the, the seats in, in, at ISRI, I really had to become more of an extrovert. Uh -huh. um, I was out on the road, I was doing speeches, I was traveling all over the country, I was, and I literally used to say to myself, okay, you're on, <laughs> switch, you know, flip that switch and right. go. Right. But I had to think it, it didn't mm -hmm. happen naturally. And I think that this is the exact same thing. I mean, I think that you have to make a conscious effort to change um, your natural tendencies to gravitate towards what is most comfortable toward, for you. For you. Mm -hmm. And um, and it's not easy and it's, uh, I mean, it, it's uncomfortable. I mean, be the first guy who walks up to a group of women. Um, you know, what do they think right. of you? And, and um, you know, I, I tell the story, I, uh, one of the things that I've done um, more recently since, the, since I've slowed down at Padness is, um, done a little bit of work with the um, MBA program at Grand Valley State University and the Dean uh, and I um, okay. teach one um, program to like senior level MBA students about implicit bias and, oh, and, okay. uh, and how to think about it and how to deal with it. And, and mm -hmm. we were doing an a MBA program for one of the local hospitals, which was mostly male physicians and female senior nurses. Mm -hmm. um, but there was one senior nurse who was a guy uh -huh. and he came up during the break to us and he said you know I have to tell you okay I mean it's crazy you know like um, women come up to me and pat my head and and you know other nurses and they do and you know if I did that to them I would <laughs> be in so much trouble and I, I just, I, I think that overcoming those just natural tendencies um, mm -hmm. is just really, really uh, important in terms of being able to move forward with it. You need to literally say to yourself, um, what does my team look like? What are its strengths? What are its weaknesses? And um, how do I fill that in a more diverse way? And then you have to consciously um, go out to look for that. Yeah, okay. I would think in the scrap industry, this, this reminds me of there's a company out of the UK that had uh, had let me know that, that sent out a press release actually that they've been trying to increase the female percentage, the women percentage of their workforce, and they found that their biggest barrier, and I think this kind of ties into implicit bias, had been on the operations side. They would never have thought to even try to recruit or find a forklift driver or you know, a, a crane operator, scrap handler operator, you know, from the from the whole female half of the population. Oh, for absolutely for sure. I still remember our first female truck driver. Okay. <laughs> and the it guys were, happen. I mean, well, it can, but I mean, you know, all the guys were lined up to watch her back in, you know? Oh, geez. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. I mean, speaking of hurdles, um, mm -hmm. if you weren't nervous enough to begin with, but, you know, in at Patness, we now have um, very senior level. Um, we have um, female managers of yards. We have um, a woman who um, is um, in, responsible for a big part of our facilities management. Not one of them. Um, but they were all good. And so they've Perfect. succeeded. Great. 
Oh, to, to, to stay in the scrapyard, I guess. Um, we're not actually at a scrapyard right now, but it, thinking of, about the, uh, the, the main facility in Holland, the main Padnos facility, how has processing technology changed in the 37, it sounds like, years that you, you've been working? What, what would you have seen, or even going back to your childhood when you went to that location, what would, you, what would have been there now that's long gone and what is now on that site in terms of machinery or process that just wasn't really fathomable during your childhood is there what are some things interesting well what would be there and it's not long gone because we still do have some application but cable cranes i think uh, yeah uh, right. it was a hundred percent cable cranes at, at the time um, mm -hmm. um, we do still do some um ship loading uh, barge loading with cable cranes oh, okay. uh, just because of the, the length of the booms and and uh, the ability to uh move the scrap a little bit better, but um, I would say 95% of what we do is now hydraulic. Sure. Um, and I think that's probably universally true. When I, when I, um, when I was a kid, we had balers. Um, and, um, you know, as, as, as I, as I grew up, um, we gained shredders and mm -hmm. shears and a hot briquetting system and a motor block braking system. And, okay. um, and in my family, every one of those was a really big deal. I see. Um, uh, we all went down to, uh, <laughs> to go see what was going on and to see everything work. And to, um, so um, that was a very big deal in my family. In fact, I'd tell you a funny, sort of a sweet story actually, but when my dad, um, went off to World War II, mm. um, he took two photographs with him. One um, was of his parents and his brother, and the other one was of the new cable crane. <laughs> well, that is, that is an amusing story. <laughs> Jeez, that's funny. So, I mean, and, 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 and now it, it, it's not um, processing equipment per se. I mean, mm -hmm. Um, you know, as I joined, um, it was um, computers and controllers right. um, and automation. Um, and now I think um, that the, the, the biggest area is sorting technology, which is just incredible. Mm -hmm. um, sure. And um, I, I think that that um, has taken all of us to a whole new level. Yeah. Um, of processing. Um, so it, it's, it's been pretty dramatic. Mm -hmm. Do you remember, and I, this is putting you on the spot a little bit, but do you know when, when the first shredder, auto shredder would have been installed by Pandos? Yeah, see, I don't want to. It was in, yeah, this is another funny, funny story. Um, it was in the early 60s, I think, that oh. it got commissioned in, in 63. Okay. Mm -hmm. And it was, um, the, you know, the guy who really um, brought, um, the, um, the, the shredder into, into um, popularity and, and mm -hmm. uh, was uh, Mr. Proler. Yeah, Israel Proler, and, you uh, after him. <laughs> and, and, and it was called Prolerized for a sure. long time. Uh-huh, um, yep. And so the distinction that my, um, my dad and my uncle had was they were the first ones to put a shredder outside of a large metropolitan area. Oh, okay. Um, and it was <clears throat> enough of a distinction 
um, that Charles Kralt actually came and did an interview on site. Wow, really? All right. Yeah. And um, ABC and News, evidently, I Charles was uh, CBS or ABC? I don't know if I, which one I think it was. CBS. Okay, CBS. Sure. Yeah, pretty sure. Um, anyway, uh, so evidently Mr. Proler saw the segment and he called my father to say, ah, I see you invented the shredder. <laughs> <laughs> That's a little <clears throat> regional rivalry there. That's funny. <laughs> What, to talk about Western Michigan specifically, you mentioned barge, you know, some barge loading done by the company. So is that, what waterways does Padnos have access to that would uh, involve barging? Brian? I yeah, I know, we clipped out there for a minute, didn't we? What, uh, what waterways does, does Padnos have access to that would let it do some barge um, shipping? We, we, um are on Lake Michigan, well, we're on Lake Mactaw, which is a, a, a inlet into Lake, from Lake Michigan. Okay, so, um, so we have the entire Great Lake system. Plus in, in the very early years when we, when we built the dock, when my dad had the dream to build the dock, we actually um, um, partially loaded ships to, cause we don't have, we didn't have 26 feet of depth. We had, I think at that point it was about 18. So they had to go top off someplace else, but we actually shipped ocean-going vessels uh, through the St. Lawrence Seaway. Oh, really? Oh, okay. Huh. What What else should outsiders know about Western Michigan? Uh, now we know it's on your 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 facility is on the coast. You're on the water, but what else about Western Michigan in terms of a, as a place to to source and and look for scrap metal? You, you know what? How has that market well, been over the years? I don't want to give away the secret, and I don't want everybody coming to visit or to no. stay. <laughs> um, but um, we continue to be uh, very automotive driven. Okay. So many um, tier two and tier three um, suppliers, in addition to uh, assembly. Um, uh -huh. uh, you know, pe people can talk about um, Alabama and uh, China and you know mm -hmm. other places where they have plants, but there is still no place of consolidation of automotive the way that there is in Michigan. Okay. Um, and then we also have, and I think this is maybe less known, but um, a very vibrant furniture manufacturing industry, uh -huh. which started as wood manufacturing back in the days when um, they were logging in um, Upper Michigan and in the Upper Peninsula. Mm -hmm. There was a super abundance of wood. And so all of these furniture factories began as, um, or most of them began as wood manufacturers, but okay. um, have transitioned obviously to all kinds of other things. Mm -hmm. And we have Herman Miller and Steelcase and Hayworth and Meridian. And um, uh, I mean, uh, almost every, and, and Herman Miller just bought Knoll. And um, so it, it's, it, it's, we are continued to be a major um, production hub for furniture. Okay, all right, yes. I knew a little about that, a little about that, but that's uh, I made it did not know appreciate the extent of the furniture business there, and that's office furniture largely, right? Not entirely, but it is. Uh, I think that their bread and butter is office furniture for sure. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Herman Miller has a, a whole home side of it, but it, but I think their bread and butter is definitely office furniture. Okay. So you you had your chance to work in the legal profession. Uh, 
so and you yet you you pretty much very consciously chose the scrap business. What are some of the ways of doing business in the scrap industry that you think uh, you would identify as first of all maybe being consistent and maybe second of all just being attractive to you, you know the way folks in the in the business operate. Um, well, consistent. I mean, I, you know, I always say that if my grandfather came back and saw the breaking pit, it's the one thing that he'd know exactly what was going on. Okay. Tell us about the breaking pit. What do you, what do you mean by uh, that? <clears throat> a breaking pit is um, a, um, usually a, a large bowl-like area that you've created, hopefully with some protection around the sides, uh -huh. where you break cast. Oh, cast the, the break ball and tower it, it, cable crane. Oh, okay. Precisely. And and where you still wait for the absolute coldest morning you can find to break the biggest pieces. <laughs> okay. Um, and there is, other than the safety precautions, uh, there is almost zero difference. That's still the between same now. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. That's funny. So I, I guess that, that would be one thing that would, uh, that grandpa would still um, know exactly what was going on. Okay. Um, and, uh, you know, what attracted me, I mean, I, I think that, um, uh, you know, I, I think we probably could have been in the ditch digging business. Um, and if I, but not that there's anything wrong with ditch digging, but I mean, it just, I'm not sure it mattered what business it was. I grew up in it. It was a very big part of my family. It was a very big part of our lives. Mm -hmm. um, at the dinner table, right? Um, you know, every place, and and I think that um, I always, uh, I think, harbored some desire to come back and and uh, and at least give it a try. Okay, okay. I'm sure plenty has changed in 37 years, and plenty more has changed since your grandfather was uh, was watching those cable cranes go to work. What what are what are the changes that maybe would be the most unexpected to your somebody from two generations previously. Is it the way that the office is set up and what happens in the office with the communication methods or is some of the, you mentioned the sorting systems. I mean, that sounds like it might look. I, I, I think, you know, it, it, it is technology mm -hmm. in a really big wrapped package. It is every kind of technology that you can think about. I mean, when you, um, when you, when you interview Bob Stein, ask him about the bat phone. Okay. okay? I will. That was the, that was the one mobile phone that we had that everybody <laughs> shared. And it was in this big black bag and you had to stick an antenna on the side of your car. Ah, uh -huh. okay. Okay. Um, and even that grandpa would have been shocked with, okay. Sure. But, uh, <laughs> um, you know, but, and that was that, I mean, it just wasn't that long ago in the big picture of things. Mm -hmm, um, and, and uh, you know, I remember, um, um, Going um, to a scrapyard out on the out on the uh, west coast and seeing my very first um, fax machine. Uh huh. Okay. And it, uh, that what they did what the what the guy showed me was he said, "Look, I'm going to send over a drawing um, of of this of this container, and I'm going to show the guy where I'm going to put everything, and then he's going to okay it, or he's going to tell me he wants something moved." Okay. And within minutes, all of this happened uh, going to China. And I had never seen anything like it before in my life. Um, 
So, uh, you know, technology in everything that it means in sorting, in communications, in our ability to do exactly what we're doing here, um, mm -hmm. you and, and me. Um, oh, yeah. It's just, it's been so much fun and so interesting. And so, um, I mean, we have five electricians on staff now. Oh, geez. Wow. Um, you know, full time. And, uh -huh. and um, I, I suspect that we could use another one. I mean, mm -hmm. it just, it's just uh, a constant and, and, it, and, and it's meant huge um, savings. Okay. Uh, you know, uh, for, for all of us. Right. Right. Yeah. It's, you know, I, I was thinking about your fact story and as, as big as advanced as that was now, Processors, traders want to see photographs in five minutes, you know, of what's inside that container in exactly. full color. <laughs> yeah, it, it precisely. It's uh, precisely. So. so with the, some of these changes being very positive, to, to what extent are you, actually, before I ask the question, could you, can you delineate the state of the Padnos family right now? Who all, what, what all family members do you have involved in the, in the company? Um, so um, my cousin Jeff and I and my brother Mitch mm -hmm. and my cousin Doug make up the executive committee of the board. Um, and we are responsible for overseeing. Um... <sighs> Sorry. Okay, guests are walk-on guests uh, occasionally <laughs> happen. Too <laughs> bad we don't have video and you could see her too um and and so um we are um more involved um than uh than than the rest of the family members um who do meet twice a year to go through all of the information uh and be presented with um order uh, reports and that sort of thing uh in terms of the day-to-day -day operations my uh cousin jonathan is the um, president and CEO. Mm. Um, I have two cousins, um, Josh and Sam, who are both very active in the business. Josh is working in um, with, pardon me, a lot of industrial accounts and also uh, in the paper end of the business. And Sam is working in the aluminum end of the business. And right this minute and for the next year. Mm -hmm. uh, my nephew, Lewis, is doing a bit of an internship in between oh. school. Okay. Um, and uh, he wants to go back for his MBA, but he is um, working um, at um, with our operations team trying to get everything documented oh, okay. um, in terms of process and procedures. All right. Fascinating. Well, that actually leads nicely into the, the next question, which be someone it could be Lewis himself or somebody his age, young man or young woman who says, you know, I, I'm thinking about the scrap industry. I'm just not sure. Is it going to be, is it going to be a good place to be for the next 30 years? What would you say to that person? I think that the scrap business is a fascinating and exciting industry. Um, and I think that it will continue to be that for many, many, many years to come. Mm -hmm. uh, the challenges upon us to figure out um, how we fit into what's going on, but right. there will always be 
an end of life for useful goods, for, mm -hmm. for usable goods. Right. And the challenge we've got is to figure out how to recycle them. Mm -hmm. And I think that um, those opportunities are kind of never ending. Right. They're also never ending in a challenging perspective, right. um, but they're never ending in terms of um, uh, availability. I mean, there is, uh, we've been in the plastics business now for over 20 years. Oh, okay. Um, it's never been a spectacular business uh, in terms profitable. of, yeah. <laughs> uh, 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 until very recently, okay, when there's been um, some shortages, and right. um, you know, if you around here, if you take a look, um, you'll see houses um, that don't have siding that are that are being finished inside, but they don't have siding because there's such a shortage of oh, materials, siding. right? Wow. Now. Okay. Um, and um, so I, I think that it, it's it's a business that is full of opportunity um, and full of challenges to go along with it. But I think that's what makes it interesting and fun. And, and uh, um, uh, you just don't know where it's going to lead you. Right. I'm sure I suspect, uh, you know, your grandfather and others of his generation never expected cars to be put through a big shredder and come out and have the iron go one direction, the aluminum go another, and the plastic go another. And I guess one of the challenges that is uh, still engaging, is engaging plenty of members of your family might be electric vehicles. What, what you know, are they shredder worthy or what, what will become of them? Well, I think it depends on what the electric vehicles are made of. I, I will say this, that the batteries continue to be quite a challenge. Uh, um, they, uh, they uh, we, we, we still haven't figured out how to recycle them for sure, mm -hmm. um, in the sense of taking an old battery and making a new one similar to what we do with lead acid. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, but even handling them is, is a challenge um, because they do have the capability of um, combusting. Um, uh, right, especially those on ones, yeah. It, mm -hmm. Exactly, on, on impact. And so um, in terms of the rest of the car, I think it, it depends on what it's made of and what's in right. it. and. Uh, um, I would say we're getting better every single day at being able to recycle every single part of a car. Our, our ASR, our, our automobile shredder residue portion shrinks daily. That's great news. That's great news. I'll try to end on an encouraging question, which is, I, you know, I think it's a surprise. I've not been in the business as long as you have, but I've been doing this for 20 some years now. And you know, the, the whole notion that pretty much every major corporation operating in, in your area is issuing a sustainability report every year and saying, we're going to recycle this much and this much. I mean, is that gratifying? Is that, is that you, the Shelly panelists, are you saying finally? <laughs> oh, gosh. Um, you know, I mean, I think that um, to the extent that, that, um, that people are really, that, that companies are really prepared to um, walk the talk, mm -hmm. uh, yes, um, I think that, and there are companies out there that we see, um, Herman Miller is a great example. They actually got um, a design for recycling award from ISRI, okay. um, one of the very early ones because mm -hmm. um, they truly dedicated themselves to um, reducing landfill and to recyclable materials and to recycling. And we're seeing the other um, 
furniture manufacturers moving in that same direction. Steelcase is very focused on that right now. Mm -hmm. um, so we are seeing some people um, walk the talk. I think um, not everybody, I, I think it's a wonderful soundbite. Yeah. And it's a very <laughs> popular soundbite. It seems to have been, um, yes. But I, I, I don't think everybody um, is uh, as, as committed to it as they uh, might indicate. Uh-huh. That is, I guess, a suspicion that we'll have to keep our eye on <laughs> as journalists and as recyclers. Well, Shelly, thank you very much for spending time with, uh, with Recycling Today with the Scrap Show. It's been a pleasure, uh, been a pleasure talking to you. And do you have any closing thought? Yeah, I'm putting pressure on you. Do you have a closing thought before we say goodbye in terms of, uh, of what's going to be happening in the recycling industry in the next few years? Well, I, I actually don't have a closing thought on, on that part. I think I've sort of expressed my feelings on that, but I, I will say one thing, and that is that um, my, my work with ISRI and in a leadership position with ISRI um, gave me an opportunity that I probably couldn't have gotten anyplace else in terms of leadership. Uh, um, and it was a really critical time for ISRI at the, uh, because we were working through um, super fund issues and um, gave me the opportunity to, to, to sit on the uh, Superfund um, Recycling Task Force for EPA and, and uh, do lots of other things. But it also taught me a huge amount about leadership. Um, and I just really highly recommend um, taking that path for people who want the opportunity to grow themselves. Get involved. So I guess, yep, get involved. There's my message up on there. That's good. That's a very good one to end on. Shelly, again, it's been my pleasure. I, I hope it has not been too painful for you as a guest. <laughs> it's been my pleasure, Brian, and it's been that painful at all. Thank you very much. And I'm glad you're best, luck in the, best of luck in the move. Thank you very much. Take care. And uh, for everyone, all our listeners, this has been The Scrap Show with Shelly Padnell as our guest. Goodbye, everyone. Mm -hmm.